Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Barring any late twists, it's been a low-key transfer window as the Premier League's profitability and sustainability rules showed their teeth. Saudi spending paused, the Chelsea loophole closed and clubs instead left scouring the market for loans or cut price deals. This summer, however, things should really ramp up again as clubs will start to work with two deadlines in mind. So what is going on? I'm Ayoki Mulere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, let's get into it today. We've got the Athletics' Joey Durso and also Oli Kay as well. Oli, what? Transfer deadline day. I don't know about you, but very tumbleweed out there in the Premier League at this moment in time. Can you just give us a little recap as to why things are so slow at this moment in time? Yeah, it's so different to 12 months ago. 12 months ago just seemed absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it was, I think it was £815 million spent over the course of January. Of course, a lot of that was Chelsea with Enzo Fernandez and many others, but it felt like there were a number of clubs, about about seven or eight clubs at the bottom bottom ends of the, the Premier League, breaking the transfer record, doing sort of desperate things to try to avoid relegation and making those big splashes in the market. This, this January is so quiet. We, we ran a piece earlier in the week on The Athletic saying that there were 62 signings made by Premier League clubs last January. I think at the time of the at the time of writing, it was it was only eighteen with a couple of days remaining in the transfer window. So that will be, I mean, maybe it'll be twenty five, twenty six, something like that by the end of. The, but it's it's down so dramatically. The the size of the fees and the size of total spend is going to be down dramatically. And it's why is is probably the more interesting question. I'm sure we'll go into that. But it's clubs reining back and realizing that they can't spend money that that they don't have and that the regulations don't allow them to spend. So a lot of the clubs are at their limit in terms of the profitability and sustainability rules, BSR, and haven't really got any wriggle room to do anything significant of a size that might improve their squad or improve their chances of staying up. Yeah, do you reckon, I mean, I keep alluding to this sort of 10-point deduction from Everton and after Luton's result <laughs> the other day, Everton are firmly in, in the relegation zone at this moment in time. Do you feel you're, you're a CEO, you're a chairman or whatever, looking at that going, do you know what, we, we, we don't think we can get away with the same kind of nonsense we did back in the day anymore? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that. I, I think generally the the rules have been seen that the profit and sustainability rules or FFP, if people want to call them that, that has generally existed for the last 10 years. And people have been sort of, oh, clubs have been aware of it, but generally thought, well, it's not going to bite us hard. We might be at our limit, but there's wriggle room with it. I think the Premier League have shown with the Everton case and the Nottingham Forest case, and perhaps what's to come with Chelsea and Nottingham Forest, that these rules are going to be taken seriously now. And it doesn't sit easily with some people. And it's taken quite an adjustment because fans and we in the media are just used to clubs be able to 
spend, spend, spend without fear of the consequences. Now it's different. And now clubs are feeling, well, if we cross that that threshold, like Forrest did last season, we're in danger of a, a sanction uh, or a case against us or be referred to a regulatory commission, which could end up with a points deduction, which could end up with relegation. So if you're thinking, well, we, we'll just sign one more £30 million plays a striker who we, want. we can strike him from France, strike him from Spain, wherever that, that we will get in. He might score the goals that keep us up. Clubs are having to think, no, we, we can't do that. We're, we're at our limit and we've got to respect the rules a bit more than clubs have done in the past. And it's, it's because so many clubs have already used that limit. I mean, it's, it's already 150, what, 105 million pound limit losses over three years it's like being right up against your overdraft and suddenly thinking um all right well i guess we can't spend anymore yeah jeremy i I guess when we talk about it in terms of an overdraft there was a time where you know chairmans might just uh throw a little bit of money in there you know just to buff up the coffers and stuff like that obviously that can't happen anymore in in the same way does that then affect the kind of deals that then can happen moving forward yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something I've written about for a piece for The Athletic, which I think is going to be out on Friday. Uh, there are sort of five new types of, tran- not new types of transfer, but transfers that we're seeing particularly in this window. And one is just this buy now, pay later thing, which is massive. I mean, I think Man United have an estimated 364 million in unpaid transfer instalments. So that's players that are already at the club. So that's like, you know, say you're a Man United fan and you want to spend 100 million pounds on a striker. Well, you're already, you're already paying 60, 80 million pounds on strikers that are already there. So that's a huge kind of millstone around the club's neck. So buy now, pay later is one of these transfer issues that we're seeing massively. Um, another one is a kind of academy flogging off the academy, which is a really new thing and really quite jarring because, you know, fan, you know, you think about Harry Kane at Tottenham or a Steven Gerrard at Liverpool, or, you know, fans love the idea of an academy boy making it in the big leagues. But now because of the way that the Premier League's accounting rules work, selling an academy player counts as pure profit. And you're seeing now, you know, Jacob Ramsey at Villa, who's a really bright prospect, been in the first team for several years now, is being linked with a move out, which is quite... Seems quite strange. Um, not the kind of player you want to be getting rid of. Um, also, Chelsea looking at shifting out um, Conor Gallagher and Armando, Armando Broja, which again seems a bit weird to fans. And then um, just the other kind of three types of transfer we're seeing more of, we've got loan with option to buy um, and relatedly loan with obligation to buy. Now, they basically kick the transfer fee into the next set of budgets. So you can get a player in now and um, pay for them later. The obligation to buy is a particularly strange one. Um, you've got Lewis Hall as an example going from Newcastle to Chelsea because obligation to buy is basically just buying a player. The loan is just a sort of accounting trick which um, pushes the fee uh, further further down the line. But if you look on the Chelsea website, you know, Lewis Hall is listed as a Chelsea player, but he's not really as a Newcastle player. And the other type of transfer we've seen quite a bit of in this window is the the one for the future. So this is the sort of I guess, low-risk, high-reward signing. So Villa have signed this uh, fullback, Costa Nedeljkovic from Red Star Belgrade. He's only 18, you know, 8 million quid, which isn't nothing, but, you know, he could go on to be worth many times that. Or they might just sell him for a similar amount back to a European club in a few years' time. Brighton have signed uh, Valentin Barco from from, uh, from Argentina. Uh, Man City have signed an Argentine forward for a similar amount. We've got Brentford signing a Turkish player for a few million. These are not players who are going to go straight into the first team. But Premier League clubs are calculating, you know, Man City have done an amazing job shifting on players that, you know, a lot of City fans have probably never heard of for pretty large transfer fees. So uh, clubs are being a bit more strategic now. They're thinking, right, I'll buy this player while their value is quite low. They're teenagers possibly get our money back in a few years' time, possibly 
They'll improve the first team. You know, if you look at Moises Caicedo as a great example, Brighton signed for a few million quid, then sold him for 100 million quid. So we're seeing clubs, you know, as Ollie was mentioning, it's not so much let's get a 30 million quid striker from Spain, which might, you know, hobble us for years under FFP or profit and sustainability. So it's more savvy, there's more low-key types of transfers that we're seeing much more of. Yeah, Ollie, um, just back on that idea of the you know, the academy players uh, being that sort of pure profit. I mean, people still need to pay, right? I mean, Gallagher hasn't gone anywhere anytime soon. Who knows? Transfer windows still open. But definitely in terms of pure profit, wow. I mean, technically write that off the books immediately. Well, yes, but I, I sometimes, I don't know. I, I was looking at Liverpool and Chelsea last night and Chelsea have had the best academy in in the Premier League the last 10 years in terms of the players that have come out. You think of Rhys James, Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, Tamori, Mark Gehi, Levi Colwell, Conor Gallagher. It's it's an incredible production line. And I'm just watching Chelsea. I'm thinking I would much rather be watching a Chelsea team with these players in than having sold. It's great if, you, it's great if you're selling these players for a profit and replacing them with better players on the cheap. But Chelsea have sold these players and they've bought pretty terribly and wildly. And that's not just, I mean, the last two years have been wild, but they bought wildly for for a number of years uh, with no real sort of sense of what they're trying to do in terms of actually how they're trying to build a team. You look at Connor Bradley, who was on loan at Bolton last season. And you look at Gerald Kwanzaa, who's played a lot of games for Liverpool this season. You look at Curtis Jones, these are guys who probably, if they had been at Chelsea, probably wouldn't wouldn't have got a look in because Chelsea have have they've got Gallagher and Colwell in, in the team this season, but they've got so many players that they've brought in, and they've they've sold off so many of their best homegrown players to make room for well, I mean, to clear the books to to make profit, but at what cost? Because they're signing players who, to me, in many cases, are inferior. The output of Liverpool's academy has been nothing like as great the last 10 years. Trent Alexander-Arnold, Curtis Jones, now Conor Bradley. But because there's been this plan, because there's been this sort of environment in which young players thrive, it's different. Liverpool aren't developing players to, to sell them particularly. Liverpool are developing players in the hope of getting them in the first team. And that's the way it should be. I think I think the, the business argument for academies has gone way, way, has got out of hand, really. The fact that as... Joey says Aston Villa looking at potentially selling Jacob Ramsey. It, it's it's quite galling, really, because I think fans want to see local players, homegrown players that they can identify with. And I don't always think in a lot of these cases they are being replaced by better players. So yes, it might look good in in a books, but I, I don't I don't think that strategy particularly plays well on the pitch. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, I tell you what, it's not just the Premier League that's feeling the pinch. Across Europe, in the top leagues, it's exactly the same. Well, here's James Horncastle with the Italian perspective. It's been a quiet window in Italy. Then again, it was this time last year. I think last year was down to the Prisma investigation at Juventus and the scrutiny of swap deals. 
This time around, I think that is still a factor, um, but there are other things going on too. Um, yeah, the City R TV deal went backwards, so effectively clubs are a little bit poorer. The Decreto Crescita, or flat tax, um, which allowed City R clubs to appeal to players from abroad, but also Italians working abroad, ended on January 1st. And if you look at the top clubs, Juventus, Inter and Milan, they've all done relatively little. And so that has meant that there's been very little in the way of trickle-down economics. Um, you know, for example, if we go back two years ago, Juventus paid close to 90 million uh, for Dusan Vlajevic from Fiorentina. And Fiorentina, okay, they didn't go out and spend all of that money within Italy, but you know, some of it did trickle down into the Italian market. That's not happened um, this time. In fact, all 20 teams, um, yeah, the aggregate transfer spend is the equivalent, more or less, of one Dusan Vlajevic uh, in, uh, in this transfer window. Oh, I don't know about you, I could just envisage myself in a little classic Alfa Romeo while James Horncastle is chatting to me about Italian transfers. Anyway, let, let's get back to the Premier League. And uh, Joey, you mentioned Aston Villa earlier and having to sort of offload uh, key assets in terms of, you know, youth players who've come up through the ranks. But how does a team like Aston Villa then bridge the gap, really, without trying to get rid of its best assets to try and bring some, you know, potentially more interesting players in because, you know, you've got Man City doing what they're doing right now. You've got the, the typicals are there, Liverpool are there. I mean, how do Villa become a stalwart in the Premier League? Well, by by boosting revenue because, you know, the profit and sustainability rules, you can, you can spend what you earn. And clubs like, you know, clubs that have been in the Champions League for years have far higher revenue, you know, commercial, selling shirts, whatever. And Villa, who are in the Championship four years ago, are naturally... Um, way behind that. But there's a, quite a lot of sort of tension at Villa at the moment about jacking up ticket prices, about the, a new stadium that was sort of planned and then it's been cancelled and no one's quite sure what's happening. But obviously the, the the top of the club thinks we really need to be earning more money quickly to spend more. But that's got to be done carefully because if you suddenly start charging 70 quid for tickets that cost 35 quid the season before, people are going to get annoyed. The, the best thing that Villa could do would be to qualify for the Champions League because that's a huge cash injection and that's really helped Newcastle. Um, not just the you know, the, the the direct broadcast revenue from the Champions League. You've also got more match day revenue because you've got several extra matches. Obviously, Newcastle didn't do particularly well in the Champions League, but they got a huge boost from that. And they got a new shirt deal. They've got a new deal from Adidas. I believe that was around the same time. So just qualifying for the Champions League once is a is a huge cash injection, which can help for, for several years. So that is the best thing Villa could do uh, in the short term. And then obviously establishing that over several years would be even better. And I guess sort of capitalising on this season when Man United and Chelsea are doing really badly, which might not be the case in a year or two, given how much money they've got to spend. Mm. Oli, from your perspective, then, you know, this sort of idea of a financial regulation, do you think it helps bridge that gap? Or it, does it help enhance the competition in, in many respects? No, I think it widens the gap. I think when every club can only spend within its means, it becomes more sort of stratified. I think the top four top six clubs become more entrenched. I mean, obviously we've seen 
Manchester United and Chelsea sort of performed below that level at times over the last few seasons. We've seen clubs like Villa currently um, in the top four, Newcastle last season. But generally speaking, it becomes more entrenched. I think that is an inevitable result of something where everyone is just forced to spend within their means. But at the same time, I don't think the problem is the rules. I think the, the problem is that the revenues are so different between the top clubs, the Champions League elite, the clubs who've been in the Champions League year after year after year and have been getting commercial exposure all around the world and have grown and grown and grown, like the top four, five, six clubs in in England, the top two, three clubs in in Spain, the top one or two clubs in Germany, etc. And the rest, it just makes these huge divisions within, within a division. And it's very hard in Aston Villa's case to make that jump. It's hard with the rules, even with the wealthy backers that Newcastle have, it's hard to make that jump and, and to stay there. We see Newcastle get to a certain point and then find, all oh, right, well, you can't spend anymore because you're at your spending limits. And I do sympathise with that and with fans of those clubs when those spending limits never existed in the past. You know, Blackburn would never have been able to do what they did in the mid-90s had those spending limits existed. Chelsea and Manchester City certainly wouldn't have emerged the way they did in the you know, 2000s had those spending limits existed. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, this is killing dreams. It's, it's, it's killing ambition. And I've got a certain amount of sympathy with that argument because it's, I've been writing about this for years about how that competitive balance has just disappeared across European football and how hard it's become for anybody outside the elite to break in. But I do think spending limits are necessary, not just to protect clubs from competition, which is a bad element to it, but to protect clubs from overspending. I think it, I think it's dangerous, the amount of money that is swirling around. I think some kind of control became necessary at some point as the nature of ownership in the Premier League in particular, changed. And the Portsmouth case is obviously an extreme example of this, but there have been so many owners coming in and just spending wildly, absolutely wildly. And Mishiria Everton, if they'd not been subject to some kind of controls, I think they'll be in much bigger financial trouble than they are. So yes, those rules might be keeping Everton down in some respect because they didn't enable them to spend much more money after sort of 2021 onwards. But they were spending money they didn't have. They were spending money that would subsequently have been withdrawn when there were sanctions against Russia uh, or Russian oligarchs. And when your whole model is based around what a Russian oligarch or a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund or an American private equity investor or whatever might put in, I think there's got to be some kind of control. And I I think... I was somebody who didn't really argue for the controls in the first place. I was probably argued against them. But I think as the years have gone by, it's just it's become more and more obvious that those rules have got to be in place and got to be respected and got to be policed in some way. If we end up now with, with clubs not able to buy yet another £25 million striker or yet another £10 million goalkeeper or whatever, I think it's probably a good thing if, if clubs are forced to work with what they've got for a period. It's not just Aston Villa and Newcastle, it's Manchester City, Manchester United and Arsenal and other clubs are right at their limits. So the regulation is necessary. And I, th- I would, I would these days I would argue for more regulation, not less. It is just way harder than when Abramovich bought Chelsea and when uh, the Abu Dhabi linked owners bought Man City. I mean, I think a big difference now is that for, you know, Man United and Chelsea have massively outspent 
say, Villa and Brighton and done worse um, over the last few years. But that is because of very good, you know, management, very good transfers and abysmal transfers on the other side. But that won't just sustain forever. You know, you have to do pretty badly to spend that much money and be ninth in the Premier League. Um, And Man United can afford to make loads of mistakes. Whereas if you're Brighton and you make a couple of dud 50 million transfers, um, you'll see yourself, you know, in a relegation scrap. So the teams like Chelsea and Man United um, can just afford to make endless mistakes. But I do agree with Oli that if we didn't have any rules whatsoever, then what you would see is the Sultan States, as you call them, you know, Newcastle and Saudi, just spending insane sums of money. And then you'd have other clubs under intense pressure to try and keep up with them, um, spending money they don't have. And then either trying to raise money through, you know, jacking up ticket prices, dodgy commercial deals, whatever... Or just just falling behind, but you know. But at what point would Man United and Arsenal say, or Liverpool say, actually, you know, we can't compete with with these two. We're just gonna, you know, accept being third or fourth in the league. Um, so, so, so I, you know, lifting all limits. I don't really know how that would help things in the long run. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on because we've got uh, the the verdict from Italy with James Horncastle. Let's let's head over to Spain. Um, let's hear what Dermot Corrigan has to say from the Spanish approach over this month's transfer window. We've been very quiet here in Spain so far in the January window and not expected very much to happen between now and, and the window closing. La Liga have had very strict budget rules for a couple of years now. Uh, a lot of clubs are right at the top of their salary limit. They have to make some room on the wage bill before they can sign anybody else. They also know that they've spent most of the, the money that there's possible to spend last summer. There's been a couple of deals at Atletico spending some money, but most of the clubs are trying to get players out. Um, even Rakitic has gone from Sevilla to Saudi Arabia, for example, which will allow them maybe to bring in some more people before the end of the window. And on Real Madrid and Barcelona, Madrid spent a lot of money last summer on Jude Bellingham and are currently saving up to see whether they're going to sign Kylian Mbappe or not, um, which would explain maybe how quiet it's been so far there. And at Barcelona are right at the top of their La Liga limit as well. They were just able to sign the Vito Roque, the young Brazilian attacker. They brought him in as an emergency replacement for Gavi, the midfielder who's out for the rest of the season. La Liga have allowed them to make that as an emergency type of a, a substitution into their squad. But generally speaking, it's, it's La Liga's salary rules, which are forcing all the clubs to live within their means, makes it difficult to speculate, to spend money that they maybe don't have in the expectation of getting it in the future. It means that the league clubs haven't racked up the debts that they used to have in the past, but it also means that a lot of clubs are very limited in what they can do in the transfer market, especially in the winter window. I guess the group we haven't talked about really and there's the Saudi Pro League really in terms of creating you know a, a domino effect uh, as to say you know we still need to sell players and uh, they've been pretty quiet this January haven't they Ollie? They have yeah um, it was suggested in September but after their transfer window closed that that January might be quiet but I think a lot of people were thinking oh are they going to are they going to come back in for Mo Salah or are they going to come back in for for whoever else um, are they really going to show any restraint when they showed so little in the in the summer but yeah I think I think they've they've realized there's probably not a great deal of business to be done I mean is that it's, it's been I mean apart from Rakitic it's been fairly quiet hasn't it um the January window and uh yeah I think there'll probably be a, a few Premier League clubs relieved by that that they're not having raids for their best players and a, a, a number of other Premier League clubs really disappointed by it because I think they had thoughts of um, 
dumping a load of their expensive, uh, aging, uh, overpaid players on Saudi Arabia and were probably very disappointed that there wasn't going to be a market for them. Maybe there will be with for them in the summer. Uh, we, we shall see. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about that. And if it is true that they want the pro league to be very competitive and, you know, it's going to see MLS or better or whatever. They're actually going to need younger players. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking about that. If you're taking someone 35, 36 plus, of course, they've still got the legs. They might have the status, but it doesn't mean you're going to get a great footballer, are you, Oli? No. So actually, no. perhaps Premier League teams can't bank on that necessarily. Even last summer, um, when it was clear what, what the strategy was and what the market that, that the Saudi uh, clubs were going for it was it was generally sort of really really big name players who were sort of in their mid mid thirties late thirties in, in in many cases and all about them trying to sort of make an impact in the short term it was obvious as well I mean I know that there were a few players like Ruben Neves Sefi Fofana etc who went there younger but it just seems that I, I I don't think anything that's happened in the Saudi Arabia over the last six months or so has really marked it out as a really good career move. I think Jordan Anderson is probably the most extreme example of somebody who ended up regretting it very quickly, but we know that Benzema hasn't been um, happy at Al-Itihad. There have been various other murmurs from different players, uh, publicly or, or privately. And it's if you look at the idea of younger players going there for the for the best years of their career, I'd, it feels a bit like a sort of a bit of a dead end career-wise at the moment. And that's a perception that they're going to have to change. Yeah, Joey, you spoke earlier about loan deals being off the now and we've realised that actually most of the interactions between the Premier League and European clubs have been loan deals. What did that? What does that say about the disparity in wealth between both types of leagues? Absolutely. I mean, the European leagues just have such little cash. I mean, as we were hearing from James Horncastle there about Italy and in Spain, I mean, big money transfers from the Premier League to Europe have virtually dried up. I mean, there are a bunch of big Saudi transfers. You know, Liverpool sold several players to Saudi Arabia, but we're seeing very few of these, you know, mentioned Lukaku. That's a wild exception. Um, So we're seeing loan moves. I mean, what's really interesting is uh, Lazio have been linked with a couple of moves for uh, championship players, which, you know, you never would have heard about five or ten years ago. Or imagine that in the 1990s. I think it's Plymouth Argyle. Um, That's just the the quality now in the championship that's sort of filtering down from the Premier League. I mean, you've got huge name teams like uh, Lazio shopping there, which also says a lot about the finances in Italy because Lazio just can't afford the wage bills of, of, of Premier League players, despite being a huge name, huge fan base. I mean, we talk about the big five leagues, but, you know, it's really kind of one plus four. Like, there's such a vast difference between Italy, Spain, Germany and France and the English Premier League. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. 
And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athletic football. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athletic football with no spaces. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolera. Well, one league we haven't spoken about is the Bundesliga. Here's Seb Stafford-Bloor. Seb Stafford-Bloor. I cover German football for The Athletic. And I suppose a word to, to summarise January's activity in Germany is, is it's been very modest. I suppose it's what you'd expect. There isn't a huge amount of money in the league. By far the biggest deal has been Sasha Boy's move from Galatasaray to Bayern Munich, which was expected because I think Bayern Munich were under a little bit of political and supporter pressure to, to, to strengthen. Elsewhere, there are a few quirky deals. Kevin Behrens leaving Union Berlin for Wolfsburg is very interesting. There have also been some really smart-looking loans. Um, everybody will be aware of Jadon Sancho returning to Dortmund for the rest of the season. Um, Ian Matson from Chelsea has been a, a really big hit uh, at Dortmund as well. He's been hugely praised and deservedly so. Elsewhere in the league, Donny van, van der Beek has, has joined Eindracht Frankfurt. The one I like there is uh, Sasa Kalajic, who... When he left German football, he had a, a reputation as kind of an injury-prone player, but he, he, someone who was very gifted. He was once considered to uh, to be a successor to uh, to Robert Lewandowski at Bayern. That never, never really worked out, nor, nor really did his move to Wolves. But in a young Frankfurt side, it's, there's a lot to like. So, yeah, uh, Borja Iglesias coming in at uh, Bayer Leverkusen. That's an interesting brief because he's obviously been handpicked by Jabby Alonso to to cover the, uh, the injury to Victor Boniface and... What's really looked like a kind of a, a half-fit Patrick Schick. Leverkusen needs to score some goals. And obviously, um, you know, they've got a very, very, very big couple of months ahead of them. So that's an interesting deal. But there's nothing, there's nothing earth-shaking in the Bundesliga, uh, much as you'd expect. I mean, it's all pretty grim across Europe, isn't it? Nothing to really talk about. I mean, the Jadon Sancho one's really interesting, isn't it? Um, especially to, to Dortmund. The, the, the bigger question there is, can they afford to take him if, if United don't don't see him as a prospect there? And who knows what the Ineos group uh, think about that. But I, I guess also, Joey, in terms of a, a loan deal, depending on whether it's been factored into the contract, it also gives you an opportunity to sort of try before you buy, really. If you look at Timo Werner uh, at, at Tottenham at this stage in time, it looks like he's slipped into that team quite well. There's nothing stopping him at the back end saying, do you know what, actually, this could be quite a, a decent deal for us. Yeah, and so it's good for a buying club because, as you said, you get a try before you buy. Um, yeah, the really weird one is this obligation to buy, which doesn't make any sense. You know, what is a loan with an obligation to buy? That's just the same as buying someone, right? And that's just an accountancy trick. It's because the, the the buying club doesn't want in the 2023 budget that they've spent X. So it said it's in the 2024 budget. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more loans and particularly between sort of big clubs as clubs are trying to, you know, loans often involve a fee, but we're trying to, you know, they're trying to minimise the actual transfer expenditures and, and, and move things around for free as well. Just on the topic of the Bundesliga, I'd really recommend looking up Fortuna Dusseldorf, who are a second division team who just got to the semi-finals of the cup. And there's some absolutely incredible photos of that kind of German style of the like whole stand shaking as people are bouncing along. Look it up. It's amazing. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, let's look ahead to the summer then. Um, the idea is if there's clearly not much spending right now in January, that hopefully clubs are maybe taking a restock of exactly what they're going to need in the summer. Are we expecting the summer transfer window to just explode, Ollie? Yes, in some ways. I mean, the obvious the obvious one is 
Mbappe, what will happen there? Will he go? To, will he go from PSG to to Real Madrid, or will he go to somewhere else? Might might he come to the Premier League? I don't know. But that feels like that's the big one that everyone's waiting for. January is is often a market reflected by or reflecting desperation rather than sort of long term planning. I think if you look at Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Manchester City, Liverpool, they they do most of their most of their business in in the summer anyway. Yeah, so I, I would expect there to be much more activity in in the summer, but but maybe I mean it's it's a tournament year. Tournament years are often a bit quieter. I think that that sort of lack of cash in the market is going to be a continuing issue. I think a lot of clubs are going to continue. Premier League clubs are going to be continue to be up against those spending limits. Although the the regulations are going to change probably in time for next season. So there might be a bit more leeway in terms of um, what clubs can spend. But I think it feels like we're in, a, we're in a slightly different phase where the absolute madness of perhaps the sort of 2017, 2018, 2019 period pre-COVID where there was just absolute rampant spending across Europe, not just Premier League, but PSG was spending like mad, Juventus spending like mad, all these expensive swap deals that that uh, Joey mentioned. So I, it feels like we're in a slightly different period now. From a Premier League perspective, um, Joey, The Athletic, we wrote that potentially we're looking at two sort of transfer windows in, in the summer, um, right at the end of the season and obviously uh, right at the back end of the real transfer window. Is this something you see as, that could be emerging as a bit of a trend? Absolutely, because of this date, June the 30th, which is when um, the, the accounts have to be in. So uh, there's often lots of pressure on selling clubs to get something over the line before June the 30th. We thought, I think it was Richarlison from Everton to Tottenham. There was a massive pressure on that one. Um, and then buying clubs, you'd rather have it, you know, the other side of the line. Well, depending on, you know, loans and obligation to buy. So there's a lot of that. That's a hugely important date, which will be bang in the middle of the Euros, which is not a great time for a lot of players to be moving around. I mean, as we were discussing earlier, you know, lots of clubs have effectively already spent a lot of their budget for next year because they've got these amortised transfer costs that they've already spent. So Man United, 360 million. I think Kieran Maguire, the uh, football finance expert, calculated that there's about £2 billion in transfer money that Premier League clubs owe. So they've already spent a lot of their budget for the next year. So that's one of the reasons increasingly why we're seeing more and more restraint is because of this sort of buy now, pay later culture. And then, you know, when it comes around to it, it's like, you know, sorry, we've already spent half our transfer kitty. And we're talking about so many spending restrictions, Ollie, and there was that golden age where the the Abramovich era were just throwing money at things. Do we we feel this sort of bobble is bursting of Premier League overexpenditure? It's something we've got to, we're going to have to look at over a period of time. I, I, I think you always get quieter windows and busier windows, and and it, it's it does feel like there's a bit of you know reining in and uh, reining in of, of the spending. But it wouldn't surprise anyone if if the next two three years see another escalation in the Premier League at least. But I think one thing, if you ask, I mean, this is this is very much a view among the big clubs, and I really reject and slightly resent it. They believe that they have this right to more and more and more and more revenue every year. And they're frustrated that there's, you know, revenues aren't sort of continuing to going up, up and up like this. Um, Not really realising or caring that for for clubs outside of that elite, revenues have declined for or flatlined for for a long, long time. Yeah. What what do you think on this, Joey? And the idea of this sort of Premier League overspending bubble bursting? Yeah. I mean, I don't see the bubble bursting as long as the TV deals are absolutely massive, which they are. You know, if there was ever a sign that, you know, people in, 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 in rural India are getting smartphones for the first time and logging into Premier League apps and watching them, you know, and it's just happening so quickly. And the 
you know, as Ollie said, there's potentially that these numbers are plateauing, but they're, they're, they're certainly not going down and interest in the Premier League isn't falling anytime soon. But I think some of these sort of particularly American investors do think that this line is ever going to go up and that the clubs are undervalued at the moment. I think that's a very sort of risky bet. And, and and we really don't know if that is going to be the case. I mean, I think the biggest problem the Premier League faces in the longer term is is runaway wage inflation. I mean, wages are just growing so quickly of these elite players earning two hundred, three hundred thousand pounds a week, and that money has to be paid for by by TV deals or by fans buying tickets, and it can't just go up that way forever because you know where's the money going to come from? So that is my I guess biggest concern about the long term viability of this product is you can't be paying people you know a million pounds a week because where does that money come from? Yeah, but also on the flip side of that is where do they go if it doesn't work out at those particular teams? And as we've seen with certain players, historically, we talk about no money in Europe. We can't just hope that Saudi Arabia is going to open a door to every player that's overpaid in the Premier League um, and not performing well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I can't really like, Karen Benzema's wage, it's obviously a very different situation. It's just absolutely insane. I mean, so maybe that is going to be where players go when they want to just retain those kind of salaries because they're not going to get them in, in Italy or Spain or Germany and all these other kind of glamorous Champions League nations. The Premier League is so far detached from these other European countries now that players are just going to have nowhere to go or take a massive pay cut, which people like, don't like doing. Wow. Well, let's, let's end it there. Um, it's all pretty bleak on the money front. Goodness me, cost of living, everything. Oh, and and, and the, uh, the the coffers of football are also feeling the pinch as well. Goodness me. Anyway, gents, let, let's leave it there. Joey and Ollie, thanks so much for your time. And also do not forget to rate and review the podcast. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow with Adam Leventhal and the crew. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Guy Clark, Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. And the executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great athletic podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.